Are y'all going to go out and make a snowman? You are? Okay, good. You can pick your kids up out in the... uh... Yeah, just kidding. Um, So I always like these services when nobody comes, weirdly. um, Because... uh, when you show up to church and it's snowing, uh, you never know what's going to happen, right? That's kind of cool. Because when you come and you know what's going to happen, it's boring. But if you don't know what's going to happen, that's, that's pretty exciting. So uh, not unlike what we're going to read about today. Um, when Adam and Eve uh, sinned in the garden... God came to them and he cursed the ground uh, and he cursed them and he cursed the serpent. But one thing that he did say was that the seed of the woman would one day crush the serpent's head. And so from that point on, over and over and over and over again, whenever God was about to do something big in the redemption of his people, he would do it through the birth of a baby. Abraham old, as the scriptures say, as good as dead, had the son Isaac, right? We read about God's peoples crying out for deliverance from their bondage in Egypt, and Moses is born, right? Um, We see the people of God during the period of the judges uh, being oppressed by the Philistines. And, and the scriptures tell us that God began the deliverance of his people from the Philistines through the birth of the crazy man, Samson. And not long after that, God pivots in his work with his people to bring them a king, but he does that first by bringing them a prophet, Samuel, who was a miraculous birth as well. Think about this. What does it say about our God that he begins his work with infants? Right? Uh, when, When you think of infants, you probably think of someone who's needy, cries a lot, weak, right? Uh, maybe cute, maybe, but, um, some are cute, uh, my grandchildren will all be cute. Uh, but, uh, but the, the fact is that as we, as we think about that, it is, uh, it says something, uh, to us, doesn't it? And so, so as we look today, we're going to uh, take a, a moment to look at the birth of John the Baptist and, uh, uh, and, uh, to kind of help us, uh, understand a little bit about God's economy and the way in which he deals with us and the way in which he brought about, um, uh, the, the salvation uh, uh, of his people. So, uh, AJ, go ahead, go ahead and put my notes up there. So, to, we're going to read in a few minutes the, uh, the hymn that, uh, Zachariah, John the Baptist's father, uh, sang at his, uh, circumcision, but we need to put this in a bit of context. So, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, one of the things that you might miss about this when you first read this is, as the, the New Testament opens, uh, it opens here uh, in Luke with a... Um, 
a barren couple, an elderly barren couple, right? Now, uh, quite a religious pedigree, right? He's a priest, and, and, and his wife is a descendant of the first priest, Aaron, right? So what a great religious pedigree, very faithful, faithful old saints who had been eagerly anticipating the work of God for years and years and years, and yet right there in this faithful, loving old couple, there's a giant wound. Their faithfulness was met every day with barrenness, right? Next slide. So God's showing, uh, wants to show that he regards the brokenhearted and that human weakness and inability cannot stop his determination to be merciful and gracious on their behalf. Sends the mighty angel Gabriel with a word for old Zechariah. Now, this is, this is a thing that is, that we have to carry away from this. The reason why God, uh, so often begins his powerful work through infants is because we're like infants. We are unable. We are weak, right? And so God demonstrates his power through weakness, through the weakness of a child, right? So, so Gabriel shows up while Zachariah is in there in the temple. He's doing his thing. He's burning the incense. And all of a sudden there's an angel. Not something that happens every day, maybe at your house, not at mine, right? Uh, I, I think, I, you know, the Bible says people have entertained angels unawares. Well, Zechariah is aware, right? Because the first word out of Gabriel's mouth then is, don't be afraid. So whatever, whatever you know, if, uh, when an angel shows up and you know he's an angel, it's terrifying, right? Uh, don't really know what he looks like. Someday we'll know, but it must have been scary, right? So, so Gabriel begins to speak to him. He says, your prayer has been heard. And that tells us a lot, right? In the beginning of this, we read nothing about uh, Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth praying for a child. But they did. Your prayer's been heard. But that's not the only thing they prayed for. Certainly they prayed for a child. But the other thing that we notice is that the, the bigger thing that they prayed for as well. Your prayer's been heard and your wife Elizabeth will... Now, what, what could be bigger than... For a barren child, barren couple than a child, right? Something bigger yet. He says, your prayer's been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord and he shall drink no wine or strong drink. That is, he'll be a Nazarite and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So. So here's next next slide. So what we know about this is. Uh, that Zachariah couldn't believe the news. Now, here's the thing, you know, we were like, that's just terrible. Why, why couldn't he believe? Right? Well, now back up for a second. He's, a, he's infertile, been infertile all his life. So, first of all, there's an angel saying, your infertility's been overcome. Okay? And not only that, not only does he hear that his infertility's overcome, these last words that Gabriel says to him are kind of the last words that God says to his people in the Old Testament in Malachi. So all of a sudden, you gotta process. You know, people say that to me all the time. Stop. I need to process. I never process. I only react. Right? Right? 
So, so I don't, I don't, I don't really know what that means. Um, <laughs> I, I had a lot of men speak to me about that after the early service. That yeah, yeah. I told my wife, I'm just like Steve. So, uh, so the so the fact is, uh, this is a lot to take in. An angel, your barrenness is overcome, and not only that, but this baby is going to be the prophet that was spoken of at the end of the Old Testament that you've been waiting 400 years for. It's no wonder he can't believe it. So don't judge him, right? So Gabriel is is indignant about this, and he says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so, uh, what a what a crazy uh, thing, right? So for nine plus months, Zechariah, the happiest nine months of his marriage, can't speak. Not only can he not speak, if you read, uh, you go back and read Luke 1, it says that, that not only could he not speak, but people had to speak to him with sign language. Apparently, uh, he couldn't hear either. Nine months, nine plus months. Um, what what a what a fascinating, yeah, great thing. So next slide. Nine months later, Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist, right? And at the child's circumcision, the neighbors started to call the child Zachariah after his father, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but in obedience to God, Zachariah wrote on a tablet. His name is John. Uh, he, Zechariah is direct, isn't he? I, I like that about him. No, you know exactly what he's talking about. And immediately his tongue was loosed and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he sang these words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, I want to say something really quickly here, uh, a little bit of a rabbit trail. Bear with me uh, because... um, I think this is something that's particularly applicable to our culture today. Um, I would imagine that when Zechariah came out of the temple and had to explain to Elizabeth what happened through writing on a tablet, an angel showed up, you're going to have a baby, I didn't believe him, I can't talk. <laughs> right? <laughs> It's so awesome. So, so what, 
what must he have been thinking, right? Don't you imagine there was some guilt and some shame and like, I really blew it. And, and, you know, this is supposed to be the happiest time in my life and, and on and on. But for nine plus months, he's in silence. I think it's important for us to see that at the end of those nine months, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Now, I, I'm, I'm here to, t- you know, I beat this dead horse as much as I can. Wait a minute, you're not supposed to say beat a dead horse, right? And that the, the new rule you, what is it you do? I can't remember. Eat a dead horse? Oh, oh, okay. Beat a fed, yeah, eat, yeah, whatever. Anyway, uh, well, I'm gonna beat it again because, uh, there's too much noise in your life. Way too much noise in your life. Um, and, uh, and I think because there's too much noise in our lives, uh, um, I, I came across this quotation from, uh, from 1980 by John Piper. And he says, if we don't seek out silence, we'll probably not feel the stupendous significance of God's work in history or our lives. It would be a rare thing to be gripped and moved deeply in a noisy room or with the constant draw of media. See, what I think happens to us is, uh, it's not so much that, um, that there's a lot of noise, noise, noise. There's a quote for you. Uh, in, uh, in, in our lives, as much as it is, we can't sit still long enough in our silence because when we're silent, as Zachariah was, we have to think and we have to feel and we have to kind of deal with the truth about ourselves, and who wants to do that? And so now it's not so much the noise that is is the problem, but because we have a device readily in our hands that can take us from one moment of entertainment to the next, we have this series of kind of weird, you know, experiences. Uh, the endorphins begin to flow in your brain and... Next thing you know, you want another one and another one and another one and another one. So that when something really profound happens, you might miss it. Um, I spend uh, a portion of uh, every week this time of year sitting uh, in a tree stand. And it occurs to me that one of the best things about that tree stand is the loudest thing that happens when I'm there is when a bird chirps, a squirrel barks, or a leaf hits the ground. You know, uh, God can do something in silence. He can do something in loud noise, too. But I think, I think we make ourselves a little more receptive if we're willing to sit still and be quiet. So... God ensured that in Zachariah's life, right? Um, so one of the things that we note, too, about this, this change that occurs in Zechariah is he goes from unbelief uh, to, as he says here in verses 68 and 69, to past tense. What do I mean by that? Well, 
What he says here is, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. In other words, what he goes from this saying is, how can this be to saying that as a result of the birth of this child, God has redeemed his people, right? Now, not in the sense that John is the redeemer, but because now his faith has changed such that if God has made a promise, if God said he was going to do this, as he begins to see the very beginning of the fulfillment of that, it's as if it's good as done, right? So so God has done this thing. And so it's a pretty dramatic shift that happens in, in his heart and life in these nine uh, and a half months. And so it's a dramatic thing that God does. Uh, in his life. And just imagine that party, you know, all the, all the friends and family are gathered there and they're celebrating the birth of this child. And he gets to say, you know, this is not just about our family. This is not just about our marriage. This is not just about this cute little baby boy. This is about the movement of God to come to us and redeem us, to visit us. To fulfill what he said in Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, right? To our fathers in the past. He's doing it. It's happening right here, right now. Now, the other thing that is countercultural about this is, is that really only two verses in this song are about his son. The rest of it is about God and his son and what he is doing. Now, we would never, we would never put up with that, would we? Right? You know, this is my baby. Look, right? Uh, Lion King, right? Everybody, see my baby? Here we go, you know, pay attention. Uh, the best athlete, the smart, you know, cure cancer, world peace, right here. Everybody pay attention. And he's like, you know, you child, you will, you'll go before But what I'm really excited about is not just you, but the one that comes after you. When back when we were planning, beginning to plant this church, one of the things that was a big deal, vision and mission, vision and mission. Every every entity has to have a vision and a mission. And and every person really should have a personal mission statement. John the Baptist had a personal mission statement. You know what it was? He must increase. I must decrease. Now that is energizing. <laughs> right? Right? My personal mission statement in life is uh, to become smaller so that Jesus doesn't become bigger, but is seen as bigger because I'm getting out of the way. Right? So for all of his life, John the Baptist goes out, and by the way, you know, John the Baptist, we don't pay enough attention to him. Jesus said there was nobody greater ever born of woman than him. That's, that's up there, right? That matters. So, so what, what we, what we see about this is, is that, uh, his whole point in life was to point to Christ and his willingness to be, to give his life to that and for that. That's what mattered to him, right? And so, so his whole life was pointing away from himself and pointing, uh, uh, to, to Jesus. And I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a hard thing for us to, to get our, get our, our, our um, uh, minds around, right? And, but the fact is, his greatness 
And he is great. His greatness is found in not making himself great, but pointing out the greatness of his God and his Savior. So um, I don't know if, you, if you've been, a, uh, been in America this week or not, but we had a funeral in America this week. Uh, and I, uh, I watched as much of that as I could uh, because um, I just, yeah, I've always had a lot of admiration for George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, that's not a political statement. That's just a, I just think he's an impressive person, really, frankly. And um, it did me good to see a, a film of him this week singing Jesus Loves Me with his great-granddaughters. Pretty cool, right? I hope I get to do that. So I got think I got to thinking about uh, that this week. When one of the other reasons why I, I, I watched it is because it reminded me that there's still a place in our country for honor, but that's a whole other it's a whole other story. Uh, Where did he come up with the name George Herbert Walker Bush? So that got me thinking, right? Um, was grandfather was George Herbert Walker. So it got me thinking, well, that's an interesting name. Where did that come from? I remember something about the name George Herbert. And I can see the lights going on across the room about who he is. He was a contemporary poet, of uh, the Puritan poet John Milton in England. Um, wrote a lot of religious poetry, um, and one of the poems that he wrote, um, and because I always pull a poem out, the Sundays of Advent, we did W.H. Alden last week. We're going to look at a George Herbert poem that mirrors John the Baptist. It's called A Wreath. It's called A Wreath, as you'll see, because he talks about the wreath at the end. But this poem is a circle, right? Uh, a wreath garland of deserved praise, of deserved praise, unto thee I give, I give to thee. Do you see? that each line ends with a word and the next line begins with a reference to that. So it's going in a circle. Do you see that? Stop glazing over that. Yeah. Go get another cup of coffee and you'll see how beautiful this is. So a wreath, wreathed garland of deserved praise of praise deserved unto thee. I give, I give to thee who knowest all my ways, my crooked winding ways, wherein I live, wherein I die. Not live, for life is straight, straight as a line and ever tends to thee. To thee who art more far above deceit than deceit seems above simplicity. Give me simplicity, give me simplicity, that I may live. So live and like, that I may know thy ways. Know them and practice them, then I shall give for this poor wreath, give thee a crown of praise. Right? Um, that's the point of your life, whether you know it or not. You don't exist for yourself. You don't exist for your children. You don't exist for your parents. You don't exist for your boss. You exist for him. Okay? And that changes everything. There's That, that seems to us, in many ways, a, a kind of a harsh thing, but in, in reality, it's the pathway to freedom, Right? Next slide. So um, uh, the other thing that Jesus, uh, or that is true about this uh, 
text is not just the fact that John the Baptist was was only mentioned uh, twice in his own uh, hymn at his birth, but the the image that Zechariah is really uh, concerned about is this horn of salvation. Now, what, what do you what do you know about horns? Right, this is not the kind of horn that you blow. Right, this is the kind of horn that is on an animal that you take it off. We used to do that with our cows when I was a kid because you dehorn the cows. Did you know that? This is weird. But you do it because horns are dangerous weapons. And cows, oxen, goats, they're so clumsy and stupid, they sorry, they will they will hurt you without meaning to. Right? And it really hurts. You can die. Right? A horn is a deadly weapon, right? And so, so when, when the Old Testament speaks about the horn, raising up the horn of salvation over and over and over again, they're not saying, oh, this is something you blow or, or something like that. It is, it's, or, or like, like a, um, you know, a, a horn of plenty or something ridiculous like that. It's a weapon! <laughs> right? And so, so what Zechariah is saying is, we are an oppressed people, and God is coming to us, and he is coming to us in the form of a deadly weapon, the horn of salvation, to destroy our enemies. We don't ever talk like that, do we? Now, certainly, I think what Zechariah has in mind here when he says this, um, at least in some regard, is the Roman oppressors that are there. But... But the fact is, uh, God could could undo, and he ultimately did, the Roman uh, oppression, uh, but the people would still be in darkness, and they would still be in fear. So what, what he says here is that this horn of salvation will destroy these enemies, right? So in Luke 169, it says Jesus is the horn of salvation because he's a deadly weapon and is a tremendous power, which according to verse 71, God uses to save his people from their enemies and all who hate them. Zechariah means primarily that the Messiah will one day literally destroy his enemies and gather his people into his land and rule them in peace. Okay, next slide. But this this horn does even more than that. Verses 74 and 75 show us that the goal of God's redemption and raising up a horn of salvation is to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. God's aim in raising a horn of salvation is not merely to liberate an oppressed people, but to create a holy and righteous people who live in no fear because they trust him. Next slide, AJ. So the weapon destroys not so much the Roman oppressors, but fear and guilt, the two great life spoilers. Fear and guilt. Fear and guilt. We are a fearful people, so fearful, so afraid of so much, right? Afraid of exposure, afraid of intimacy, uh, afraid of loneliness, afraid of death, afraid of rejection, afraid of the opinions of others. And part of the reason why we're afraid of all those things is because down deep inside of us, we have a hard time believing that the gospel is true. We have a hard time believing that we're really forgiven and not just forgiven, 
but set free, and that really we actually have been declared righteous. You see, one of the th- problems that we have about the gospel is, is that we think the point of this is that Jesus did these things to scoop up a few of us to get us to heaven. But what Zechariah is saying to us, no, the reason why Jesus came and lived and died and rose again was, yes, to destroy the enemies of fear and guilt so that you could live without fear, without guilt, in joy. Humble joy, joy that is self-forgetful and joy that is willing to see and to rest in the fact uh, that as he increases and as I decrease, my freedom, my joy, my uh, uh, all of that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Right now, here's the thing. Uh, I know uh, that. Uh, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that you've really been set free, that uh, uh, that God does not want you walking around living in fear, living in guilt. In fact, he doesn't want it so much so he sacrificed his son to free you from that. John Calvin, in his commentary on John 3.16, says that men and women and boys and girls are not easily convinced that God loves them. But so to remove all doubt, he gave that which was most precious to him for our salvation. Jesus is the horn that gored once and for all your fear and your guilt. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Now, let's use this prayer of confession that's uh, printed in the bulletin, uh, also on the screens behind me. Pray with me. Almighty and merciful Father, we come to you at Advent with the brokenness of the world in our eyes, the cries of injustice, loneliness and sadness in our ears, and the rebellion and failure of sin in our hearts. O promised Christ, we are a world at war. Our peace depends on your coming. We are an unfulfilled, longing people. Our hope depends upon your coming. We are a sinful people. Our pardon depends on your coming. Lord Jesus, word made flesh, forgive our sins, comfort our hearts, and lift our eyes to look for your glorious return with hope and joy. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.
believer, hear these words of encouragement. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Your warfare is ended, your sins are pardoned, the penalty of your rebellion is paid. So in the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he was done with it, uh, he gave it to his disciples, which I do now ministering uh, in his name. At the beginning of uh, the worship service in the bulletin, there's the, the words printed there, tender mercy. Zechariah mentions uh, tender mercy a number of times. It's mentioned uh, both in his hymn and in uh, Mary's Magnificat as well. Um, when you're sitting around this afternoon in the snow uh, and you want something to do, uh, watch the movie Tender Mercy. Most of you have never heard of it. Uh, it has uh, the best actor ever, Robert Duvall, uh, is uh, um, a country and western singer <laughs> uh, who gets converted through... Uh, and he actually gets baptized. And uh, the son of the lady who owns the motel where he is living uh, gets baptized as well. And after this little boy gets baptized, they're talking to each other. And the little boy, he says, well, how do you feel? And he's like, I don't feel any different. Just like you do when you come up here and eat this bread and drink this cup. You don't feel any different, do you? You know what? I don't know that you're supposed to. Sometimes it's good, too. But sometimes how you feel about it, well, all the time, how you feel about it doesn't really matter. Jesus says to us that um, um, we... uh, what he has done for us, his deliverance of uh, our sin and our guilt, is something that's completely alien to us. And in many ways, this bread and this cup, though familiar to us, something we do every week, really is something completely alien as well. Because we are declaring by eating this bread and drinking this cup that the fact that you're angry at somebody right now, that you're in a broken relationship with someone, you're frustrated with someone, you're afraid, you're guilty. That those things are true of you. But more true than that is that Jesus died. That's the truth. And so we repent and we trust and we entrust ourselves uh, with renewed understanding and appreciation of the work that Jesus accomplished for us. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other hope, no other place to go, except the tender mercy of this God who sees you and knows you, you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere. He welcomes you. He sees you. He hears you. And in his tender mercy... He has provided the gift of his son for you. Uh, As the elders and deacons come down front this morning to assist me, let me remind you uh, that the outer ring is wine. The inner rings are grape juice. All the bread uh, is bread that is gluten-free.